everybody. Welcome to the Engage and Equip podcast, a resource designed to help form substantive disciples out of the local church. My name is John Sikotowski. I'm one of the hosts here on this podcast. And this week, pastors Lloyd Biddle and Nick Gibson are going to be talking about Howard Thurman's book, Jesus and the Disinherited. Specifically, they're going to be talking about the chapter on dishonesty and looking at the ways that dishonesty plays into the lives of the disinherited and how some of those same dynamics play into our lives today. Take a listen. Hey everyone, this is Nick Gibson and Lloyd Biddle. Good for, to be here. Yeah, for this episode of the Engage and Quit podcast. Um, many of you know that we've both mentioned in recent months a work by a scholar named Howard Thurman, who was, um, he was dean of Marsh Chapel at Boston University, and he was a, a, an African-American um, theologian and scholar that preceded Dr. Martin Luther King and was influential on him. He also um, visited other places in the world like India and Germany, and he was had a, did a lot of traveling for the period of time in which he lived, especially, and he had a lot of, um, a lot of wisdom to share with us. He wrote a book called Jesus and the Disinherited, um, and Lloyd and I are going to talk about that a little bit. Absolutely. Uh, I think today we're going to talk a little bit about deception. We want to focus on that particular chapter, or do you want to talk more broadly? Yeah, I don't about... know how many podcasts we'll get to do, so to give people a quick quick thing, so the book breaks down to five chapters, right? Mm-hmm. So there's one, just an introduction to what he calls the religion of Jesus. Yep. So he goes after Jesus, not so much as the God who Jesus is, but as the man conscious of God who Jesus also is, and to look at what it means to be a disinherited and, um, and a sort of attacked person yeah. with Jesus and his humanity. And then if you're a chapter on hate, a chapter on deception and lying, and a chapter on fear, fear, fear deception, then hate, and then a chapter on love, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Great. Yep. So we, Lloyd and I just got back from a discussion at the Upper House with some other people in town um, for the conference that's going to follow this. Uh, and we talked about deception today. So that's a little bit of hot on our minds. So if you want to get into that, that's fine, Lloyd. Sure. Um, when he talks about deception, um, he says that when you are a member of the disenfranchised group, when, you are, when your back's against the wall, as Thurman would talk about it, um, you have uh, not as many options in terms of uh, trying to support your dignity, um, support your cause. In fact, he says when it comes to deception, there are basically three options. Um, in order to preserve your life, preserve your dignity, uh, there's no, uh, uh, you have no option of trying to be honest. You just you deceive because it's just required. Uh, in order to protect yourself, you need to be deceptive. You can't tell the truth because if you do, it always comes back against you. That's option one. Option two is to be situationally deceptive. In certain areas, I can tell the truth, right? But in other areas, it's way too sensitive, so I've got to, I've got to uh, kind of veil things somewhat in order to, to preserve, again, life and dignity. And the third option, which is the, the option of Jesus, is complete and devastating sincerity. And so those were the things that he laid out today, and he says that in each of those options, there's a certain consequences. So, Nick, you want to talk a little bit about the consequences of, of, of these options? Yeah, so the, one of the controlling questions he asked at the beginning of the chapter is, does the fact that a particular course of action jeopardizes a man's life relieve him of the necessity for following that course of action? Right. And then this quote, <clears throat> It may be argued that a man 
who places so high a price upon physical existence and survival that he's willing to perjure his own soul mm. has a false or at least inadequate sense of values, right? And then so then he gets into these mm-hmm. three things, right? So mm-hmm. the first one being um, to accept the fact that one situation is what it is and there's no sensible choice offered. There is no way to preserve both your life and your dignity. So you just protect your life and you do whatever you need to do and say whatever you need to say to get along. And uh, the backdrop of this is uh, this book was published in 1949 and um, uh, Thurman is the grandchild of slaves. He's a product of the Jim Crow South, having grown up in Florida. And so he clearly has in his mind um, the the African-American cause uh, from that era. Uh, He probably has in his mind the the ideas of the the folks in India as they dealt with colonization from Britain. Mm -hmm. And so so the question he's trying to say is, man, when, when you're... When you when your word has no value, when your life is not at all esteemed, you got to do what you have to do to stay alive, mm-hmm. and um, you can understand. Maybe you could understand the the, the appeal of such a, a notion, which is to say, if I one of the examples we used was if I was a slave um, in um, in America, and the and I learned how to read. And my master came to me and said, hey, do you know how to, can you read? And if Thurman's ultimate option is complete devastating sincerity, uh, clearly there would be the loss of life or limb would be the repercussion. And so are there, are there instances where um, a lie is warranted in order to save yourself? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think one of the things that, that Thurman does a good job with, and then you see this in, we, you and I both read one of the, a similar book that was a compilation mm-hmm. of King's essays. One of the things that King did a lot of was he talked about the psychological effects of racism, mm. but really he focused on the effects of racism like a sense of inferiority, mm. um, to lying, those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. there's this quote in this section of the chapter where, where Thurman says, In the first place, it tends to destroy whatever sense of ethical values the individual possesses that is lying. Mm-hmm. And it is a simple fact of psychology that if a man calls a lie the truth, he tampers dangerously with his value judgments. Jesus called attention to this fact in one of his most revealing utterances. His mother, in an attempt to keep him from the harsh judgment of his enemies, said that he was a little out of his mind. Not terribly crazy, but a little off balance. Those who didn't like him said that he was, his mind was fine, but that he was full of the devil. And that it was by the power of the devil that he was casting out devils. Jesus, hearing this discussion, said to these people, men, that they did not talk good sense. He said, a house divided against itself cannot stand. Then Thurman again, he suggested that if they continued saying that he was casting out devils by the power of the devil, and they knew that such a thing was not the case, they would commit the unpardonable sin. That is to say, if a man continues to call a good thing bad, he will eventually lose his sense of moral distinctions. Absolutely true. And so the, the, the argument is that if I lie continuously, I become a lie. That um, that I don't understand what is true, that I see it all truth as relative, and um, and I deceive myself. I no longer can distinguish between between the, the difference between right and wrong, and then no one. Ultimately, if you live your life that way, it becomes known. Uh, when you become when you're a deceptive person, 
you lose trust, it becomes known, and, and therefore your impact on people is diminished. Mm -hmm. So uh, you kill yourself, your reputation, as well as your soul, is what Thurman mm -hmm. is trying to argue. Yeah, and so th this, the very next line I think is important to what you were saying, because mm -hmm. we talked about this a bit in the car, where he says, is this always the result, mm -hmm. right? Is it always the result that if you say something that it always destroys you? And he says, it is not possible to quarantine a certain kind of deception mm. so that it will not affect the rest of your life. Mm. Right? Yeah. And I think that, like you and I are talking about mm. whether or not um, saying a literal falsehood that you will never confuse. So like when Corrie ten Boom believed that it was right for a Christian to lie to the Nazis mm -hmm. when she was hiding Jews in her house mm -hmm. or a slave lying that he had a Bible, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. That like that was a physical truth that if you were in the face of, um, of war, you have the right to lie to an enemy, right? right? So like in Christian ethics that I was taught in seminary, for example, mm -hmm. that in like l war and games, you can lie. Because they don't have the right to ask you certain things, right. and you don't have to divulge them. Right. But if you say, I won't tell you, oftentimes they know the answer to that. If a Nazi says, you're hiding Jews, and you go like, well, I'm not going to say. Right? They'll be like, you've got Jews. Right? Right. So the only way you can not give them the answer is by lying to them. Mm -hmm. And so the argument was is that in those certain cases, you have the right to lie. Right. Now, that may or may not be right. That's but the that's argument. the argument. Right? right. And so it may be that what Thurman is arguing, right. if he says a certain kind of truth, he might be saying... If you call something that's good, bad, an ethical lie, right. the ethical lies are in a way more dangerous because they're more psychologically destructive and more mm -hmm. directly damning, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? And he and that is what he's getting at in the book mainly, right? Right. right. That, yes. that yes, will true. destroy you in particular, Absolutely. right? And that Jesus is saying, whether or not that's literally what Jesus meant by the unpardonable sin, mm -hmm. it may it, that may be one of the best interpretations of that verse I've read. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That if you if you lie to the Holy Spirit, then you lie to yourself too in the realm of your mm -hmm. conscience in the very place where the Holy Spirit is trying to bring the truth out. Mm -hmm. And if in the pl that place you lie, mm -hmm. you may be damning yourself forever because you can't be redeemed because it's the truth coming through the conscience by the work of the Spirit in that mm -hmm. way mm -hmm. that is how you get redeemed. And if that's where you say no, you might, you might not be able to be redeemed. That might be the unpardonable sin because there's no way to redeem someone if they won't acknowledge the truth that redeems them. And we consider that we serve a God who calls himself the truth, who uh, is, represents the ultimate in terms of transparency and, and reality. Um, we jeopardize our relationship with him as much as our relationship with, with each other. And so uh, that is his discussion on uh, deception, is that um, it, 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 the costs of it are too high. And so um, it, it's worth your life and limb uh, to, be, to, 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 be, to have integrity as you deal with other people. And, uh, and so as I was talking to my wife a little bit about this, she was just saying, man, um, what a high standard uh, if, if your, your life depended or the life of your, your family depended upon uh, whether you told a uh, uh, a lie or not? I mean, could you, could you, how honest can you be? When, at what threat of, of life or liberty um, would you be willing to sacrifice or, or bend on this, this ethic of honesty and sincerity? And uh, I think that's a question for everybody to, to think mm -hmm. through and consider. Yeah, so Lloyd, you know this about me, that like I've been tracking certain people who are relatively socially conservative voices mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
around the issue of free speech in relationship, especially to universities where yes. social justice theory and stuff like that has like kind of taken over entirely. And yep. they've, they've said, no, we need to actually have a rebirth of free speech. And, yep. Um, the, the the horrific, like, slandering attacks on people like that, the destruction yep. of people's careers, yep. the destruction of their futures in their field, yep. Yep. that's becoming very, very, very real for them. And they're yep. really, they really are. I mean, these are people who would, we would have considered within a franchised class, right. within a people who have power, right. right? And now they really are. They're asking themselves the question, okay, if I say that there are differences between men and women, which deeply affect our choices of education, right. career, right. child rearing, childbearing, marriage, and that affects lifetime earnings. That's right. And that if we really want to talk about men and women equally being franchised to incomes, right. the thing that has always made men and women's incomes equal is that they married each other. Mm-hmm. 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 Not that they actually had equal incomes because children are such a destruction to income potential. And so we, when we try to be equal, we force. And like, like there's some very fundamental human realities that are being lost within the social justice mindset. These men, mm-hmm. at least men and women, feel. Mm-hmm. And they, and so like it's it's becoming a a new kind of like. There's different people in different sectors, and now because things are so split, yeah. Any almost anybody, if they get a thwart of the wrong group, right, can get really horrifically attacked. That's right. And so what do you think Thurman would say, given this new context, that certain things that we've we've held to be just patently true about gender, about sexuality, um, are now being uh, opened up, questioned. In fact, that some people just think just the opposite in terms of a, a known gender, that gender can be fluid. It's mm-hmm. becoming kind of a, an acceptable thing, mm-hmm. something that when I went to college wasn't it wasn't no, no one would even consider such a, an idea that wasn't a, so 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 what what would Thurman say would he say uh, they should be honest they should still tell the truth about what they believe in gender and risk their careers because this this is a this is the issue yeah I think he would and I think he'd say the same thing that people that believe the opposite right I think he would right. say you have to I think he would say something similar to what Martin Luther said Martin yeah. you know Martin Luther said to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Right. That's right? good. That if you, you, and the Bible says a lot about that, about about offending your own conscience. Right. That like it's actually better. Like there's this place where Paul says, anything that is not from faith is sin. That's right. Why? Right? And I think it's because of this idea of conscience that like mm-hmm. you cannot go against your conscience because when you do, you don't even know who you are. Yes, your conscience right. is your sense of reality. Right. And if you go against your sense of reality, you are severing yourself from reality. You shouldn't do that. Correct. Right. And so I think that people who so I think you got to say what you think, right. but then I think you got to listen to people who don't think what you think, because yeah. your conscience might be wrong. Right. And so you want, but you can only go along if like your conscience is persuaded. Yeah, that's that's, that's true. You know? But then are you saying then? That's that... why we're preachers and not policemen, because <laughs> we know that we know you've got to persuade people if they're yes. going to come around, really. But then are we saying that to certain professionals who have to make these choices, right. that they're just going to have to accept that they'll have to be a uh, professor at you know Hillsdale and not at the University of Wisconsin. Wisconsin yeah, I mean, is that are are you willing? If that is the consequence, are you willing to pay that price in terms yeah. of your career, in terms of the income that you can make, in terms of your influence in the world, etc. And that's yeah. the where the rubber meets the road. Well, yeah, I mean, in, in some ways, that's like looking at a franchise person and saying, "Are you willing to accept the fate of the disfranchised?" Right. Right. And I, yeah, that's right. And so I think, I, yeah. So recently, I read. Um, 
I've been reading Alexander Solzhenitsyn's okay. Gulag Archipelago, and, and I think it's in the second. I'm reading the abridged version. Okay. It's only like 570 pages. So, <laughs> well, how long is the normal version? It's like three volumes of 800 pages. Oh, gosh. I see. Right? All right. Well, you know, when you're in a gulag writing a book in your head, mm-hmm. you got plenty you got of plenty space. Of time. You yeah, plenty of time. Yeah, plenty of time. So um, in one of the chapters in that, he talks about how the whole system requires everybody to lie. Right. And if everybody doesn't see themselves as the person who's going to stop lying, by the time they arrest you, and you're done with the lie because, like, now you're arrested. Right. It's too late, man. You're going to the gulag, right. Right? right? And so he's like, this could have never happened in Russia if everybody would have told the truth. Right. But because people didn't, this is what you get. And so people like um, people like the Canadian psychologist Jordan Peterson mm-hmm. has taken a lot of flack. But one of the reasons why he's been unfla- unflappable, because he's not a Christian. He believes in God. Mm-hmm. He's from a Catholic tradition. But one of the reasons he's been unflappable is because he has steeped himself in the literature of the 20th century of like how nations became murderous and it always started with an ideology that like people gave their allegiance to Mm -hmm. instead of their conscience Mm -hmm. and that led to a kind of shortening of the freedom of speech Mm -hmm. and nobody speaking against it and then this kind of self-censorship and then people would and then that leaves all kinds of space for deception and crime and hatred and ultimately genocide right and he's like i'm not playing that and so I feel a lot of that because that's the thing, that one of the things I share with him is that as an early Christian, I read a lot of persecution stories mm-hmm. of Christians in the 20th century. Mm-hmm. Most of those are bound up with communism and totalitarian regimes. Gotcha. And so I'm deeply personally steeped in that. That's why I tend to be more politically conservative. Right. Because I'm steeped in like what happens when collectivism goes bad. Gotcha. I hear you. And so, but that's always bound up with this like the self-censorship that comes from public pressure. Right. That is usually bound up with whether or not you can get positions, whether or not you can get that job, right. whether or not you, and that happens with persecuted Christians all over the world. Right. So yeah, there's this fine line between trying to get to a position of influence right. in order to influence things, and accepting being relegated to a dis to a a minority ghetto, right? Yes. So like you can only ever teach at an evangelical college because only evangelicals believe in certain views of sexuality, for example. Right. 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 Um, yeah, I, you know, I've kind of I think I kind of accepted that as a person. Like I've gotten to the point where like I'm playing the long game. I don't think I'm going to be popular in my generation. I think that I'm, I think that I'm, like everybody has to ask themselves, am I the vanguard of the revival of my generation? Or am I the ark that will hold the truth until the next generation when this lie has undone itself with its own fruits? Man, what what preachers do you think will be popular in this generation? Because I think that might be the more fundamental question uh, with Billy Graham having uh, Having passed this past past, week. Uh, and uh, him being the 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 pastor to the presidents, I mean, will we ever see another pastor to the presidents? Will there ever be another pastor that would have that kind of influence in American uh, politics and society? I think it's more fractured now, but I think that there are some really good folks out there. Like I like you know, but they but they have different. They have smaller fiefdoms. I think that's you true. Know? Yes, but I like Rick Warren. He's got mm-hmm. a good. Good sized group of people who would follow him. Mm-hmm. I like um, I like Piper, of course. I really like Mark Dever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Matt Chandler is a really trustworthy person. Mm-hmm. I think that um, there were a lot of people that were following Mark Driscoll, but then like that just didn't go well pers- right. personally. Right. Like he couldn't hold that together. Mm-hmm. And then same thing with the other the other Mars Hill, the guy who went off to uh, 
Rob Bell, I think, who kind of okay. went off to universalism, okay. and now he's—I don't know what he's doing. <laughs> so, um, but I actually, I actually like a more genetically diverse group of voices for the kingdom of God. Yeah, rather I think it's than safer. one person. Now, Billy Graham stewarded that so well. Yes, he did, and that's tremendous amazing. integrity. In the age yeah. of social media uh-huh. now, yeah. I'm not sure any one person can do it. Why do you think that? Why is social media making it so that you can't have the integrity or influence that? And I'm sure you're not arguing either of those. No. But but why do you think? I just think that, you get shot at more. Oh yeah. That's and the sure. likelihood of getting hit. I mean, like stuff. Okay. More Sticking. is going to stick. They just yeah. throw more at you. Yeah. And right now, it's mostly slander than argument. Yeah. So they just they just call you a racist. You That's know? right. Or they will call right. you a. There's any number of yeah, angles that can be taken, right? You. And, the, and and the other thing too is that um, in Billy Graham's day, not every word you said in public was recorded for sure. forever. Right. And so I'm sure Billy Graham said some sentences yeah. that if they got out there to everybody, people would be like, "What? He said right. that?" Right. Right. You know, I mean, I've said five hundred, uh, ten thousand of those sentences. Right. Right. That I would be like, "Yeah, I should have said that." Yeah. I, I don't, and I don't think that anymore. Or that was that's not rightly balanced, right? You know, I know you're very careful with your words. For, I mean, I you worked to. in corporate America. I tried to, yeah, very yeah. careful. They teach you in corporate America to be very careful about what you say publicly, and mm-hmm. uh, when you're speaking on behalf of the organization, they want it to be carefully crafted. But I think that that's a that's um, it's important for us that we want to speak the truth. We want to uh, be wise in how we approach what we say, uh, but we want to be like Jesus, totally co- totally committed to the truth. Let me ask you a question about, about another quote here. Yep. Um, he's talking about um, getting people to face that they got to be truthful people. Yeah. And he says, a profound piece of surgery has to take place in the very psyche of the disinherited mm-hmm. before the great claim of the religion of Jesus can be presented. That is the claim that you got to tell the truth. Mm-hmm. The great stretches of barren places in the soul must be revitalized, brought to life before they can be challenged. Mm. Tremendous skill and power must be exercised to show to the disinherited the awful results of the role of negative deception into which their lives have been cast. How to do this is perhaps the greatest challenge that the religious of Jesus will face in the modern world. Mm. So like, how do you... How do you take somebody who doesn't want to tell the truth for whatever reason, whether they're an American white evangelical that's afraid they're going to be disenfranchised if they tell what they think is the truth, whether it's an African-American that feels like they're not part of the economic, political, or social franchise of our Mm -hmm. culture, Mm -hmm. and speak to them in a way that, one, revitalizes through a therapeutic surgery hope in their soul, something positive, Mm -hmm. tells them that it is a greater damnation to lose yourself to lies Mm -hmm. than even to lose your life. And then it gives some kind of hope that telling the truth is worthwhile. Well, that that kind of person really has to be transformed uh, by the gospel. They have to recognize that there is a a creator and that they are created being. They have to come to to recognize that they are are subject to sin, but that there is a solution in Christ. This is the kind of person that's got to have the mind of Christ. And this is the kind of person that's got to really flesh that out over time. And that's why I think your book, Substance, has been helping so many people. It's because this is a, it's a process. And the, the disciplines that are required to grow in godliness, to be able to receive the truth more and more, to be able to walk in the truth more and more, it, it takes time. It doesn't, it doesn't happen overnight. Uh, people don't come to Jesus tomorrow and then become mature 
as Billy Graham or, or Matt Chandler or what or mm-hmm. uh, Tony Evans. You know that this doesn't happen overnight. And so and so it's a process. And I think that's why I, um, probably uh, Dr. Thurman um, uh, Howard Thurman says that is that it does take a lot of time to uh, to kind of unpack the lies of your youth, mm-hmm. the, of the lies of your of your your tribe. He spends a lot of time talking about uh, tribal differences and. There's certainly a lot of tribal lies. Mm-hmm. As an African American, I, I kind of know what the tribal lies are. Yeah. And African Americans, when they get into a room, they'll talk about them. Yeah, that's you know that's kind of a lie. You know. What I mean? mm-hmm. And I think every culture has those. And to get those fleshed out is a work that the the gospel I think is best at achieving. Do you think? Okay, so I hear you saying is is that both the recipient yeah the, of the surgery yes and the surgeon yeah. Need to go. Need to be like what I hear you saying is like deeply disciple, like I very so. deep disciple. I think so. The gospel very deeply. I think so. So you think yeah. you believe you believe with Thurman that it's a religious answer, but it's not just the religion of Jesus. It is the religion that is Jesus. It's the religion that that is Jesus. It is the gospel preached faithfully. It's an honest attempt to uh, live uh, an obedient life, even to certain things that you don't understand. Quite often we'll talk about that there's truths that you just don't understand until you do them. Right. And so that takes faith. The doing before you understand requires faith. Mm-hmm. And then that, that requires you being in a community to encourage you to do so. Right. Uh, right. So yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I think that's part of that difficult process. You would say, wouldn't you say the Bible too? There's a girl, mm-hmm. a young woman in our thing, a PhD student, African-American woman who said, yeah. who keep t- kept talking about the word. Yeah. And do you, don't you think that like the objective artifact of the Bible itself as a written static thing yes, yes. that judges your humanity yes. helps us with like the political blindness, the social blindness, the racial blindness that we all have, where the Bible just kind of speaks in there. I was like, no. Nick, I, I'm convinced that it's really the only hope for us keeping a civil, fruitful, productive uh, society going forward uh, is that the objective truth of the scripture. Um, I, I can't imagine, well, I think we are imagining a humanity with all kinds of relative truths. So we, we spoke a lot about that in today's discussion at the Upper House. My truth, your truth, you know, my culture's truth, your culture's truth. Right. And all of that has to get sliced away by Christ and the gospel. Mm-hmm. And if, if, if that can happen, then we can have unity. Mm-hmm. We can have understanding. But yeah. if that doesn't, we're going to be left in our tribes. Yeah. We're going to be left in our tribes because our tribes have a story and they're powerful. And they got long trajectories, <laughs> you know. Yeah. So if there's no if there's no intervening truth that just comes in, and 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 cuts a straight line, then we, we're not we're not left with a lot of fellowship or communion. Yeah, it's kind of like there has to be a culture that you share. Yes, like in I some think that's right. some set of assumptions and beliefs. That's very good. If you want to say, okay, we're not going to go with your culture. Right. That's right. And we're that's not right. going to go with my culture. That's right. That's right. We're going to have to like come up with another one. Whose culture? Because we will have culture. We're human right. beings, right? We so, don't know how to relate to each other without some kind of culture. There's right. got to be something. That's right. Right. And so, but then other, otherwise, if we don't have a third thing, then it's like, okay, you and I have to negotiate what we're going to take from your culture and what we take from my culture. Of course, yeah. I think my culture yeah. is better, and you think your culture is better. We got problems. So, we right. got real problems, yeah. right? So, like, you've got to yeah. have like a if you have a third thing where the Lord is saying. 
All right, you can pick from your cultures, but it's got to go along with this. <laughs> Amen. Right, you got to love your enemy, and you're going to have to love your neighbor. That's right. And what that means, you're going to have to love each other. Yeah. And, but then these things are true, and these things are false, and this right. is what justice looks like. And then we're still we're still going to be making mistakes and stuff, but like yeah. at least we got something to work off of. Correct. Right. And I don't. I really don't know how to proceed otherwise. Yeah. Unless we have this recognition of of Christ and that we've got to love our neighbor like we love ourselves out of Christ's power through his spirit right um, I don't know what we have yeah we yeah. have a lot of differences yeah I mean I think people put a lot of hope in the 17 and 1800s in what we would call classical liberalism which is yeah. like just leave people the heck alone right Right, but there was like a tenth of the world population. We didn't have nearly the devastation, devastating weapons we've got now, mm-hmm. and we didn't have intercontinental, uh, the same kind of intercontinental environmental concerns. Right. And so now what's happened is, is that there's enough stinking people on this planet that everybody's too terrified to leave other people alone. That's right. And so, but we've done collectivism too, and basically we just create a bunch of graves. Mm. And so we're like, what the heck? do we do because we're too afraid to believe in just absolute liberal individualism right collectivism has a really terrible history right so we're short, running out of humanistic ideas sh- yeah and, and yeah. like uh, people are talking now on the tech side of like once we figure out artificial intelligence mm-hmm. the ai can tell us how to live and then we'll just have to do it right right which is kind of like making your own god you know, and we're like, well, maybe we already have a God that told us what to do, that if we all did it, it would work. What makes you think it's going to work? Then you could have little flying bots that'll kill us if we don't do it. You know, like, it's really kind of scary. Nobody really knows what to do. And I don't know what to do either without, like, people voluntarily choosing to love their neighbor and choosing to try to figure out how to work with each other. Yes. You know. That's powerful. Yeah. So what? Okay, what would you say the for the average Christian, if you're like, okay, this is a truth. Like without you mm-hmm. studying Thurman, mm-hmm. yeah, here's an insight that we could take from this, mm. either from our life, just our individual life with Christ, yeah. or our individual life living in a world that is complicated by inherited, disinherited kind of dynamics. Mm. Thurman um, is a big believer in community. Uh, he's a big believer in human beings at the same uh, level of humanity having um, goodwill towards each other, uh, having friendship. Thurman believes that this is best um, accomplished in the church, to be quite honest. Mm-hmm. And um, Definitely. He's one of the early pioneer multicultural pastors, having pastored a church in, I think, San Francisco in the 50s, early 60s. Um, And so he would say that the best place for us to tear down some of these barriers of the weak against the strong, um, the the various ethnic barriers that um, are obviously there, is to come together in fellowship in Christ in the local church. Uh, I think that's really his big idea. I was kind of surprised when I heard that. Yeah. Because of the date he wrote. Yes. It was very early. And it was at a time where a lot of people would have said, no, the, the black people have to get together to fight for their rights, and they can only do this if they have a black church. That's right. And you can't be, right? But he was like, right. and he wasn't like a, hey, we need all kinds of churches, and some of them should be multi-ethnic. He was kind of like, 
No, every church should struggle to be multi-ethnic. It's the only way to do this. Let me give you something that's pretty close to a, to a quote. He says, Jesus has freed us from the natural division that comes from ethnicity and class and has given us unity in himself. He's, then he says, but the church in America, now again, he's writing in the, in the 50s and 40s, but this not much has changed, quite honestly. But the church in America has betrayed our, our unity by our history of segregated churches. We have established rich and poor churches and churches of all kinds of races and ethnicities, white and black, Mexican, Filipino, China, Chinese, Korean, Ugandan, Nigerian, for instance. For Thurman, this is a great moral and ethical evil because it betrays the mutual love every Christian should have for their brothers and sisters in Christ. We are saying, I love you. I just don't want to be around you on Sunday. And, um, uh, and so uh, when we separate ourselves, we have uh, we come together in the in the grocery store or at work, but we don't have any real relationship. We have a work kind of a situation. Um, there might be hierarchies at play, but in the church, there's opportunity for real fellowship in Christ, and Thurman sees that as one of the biggest ways to deal with the problem between the disadvantaged and the um, and the uh, the oppressor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let me read a couple of summary quotes. Yeah. And maybe you can give us a last comment. Okay, sure. So this is in the love chapter at the end. Because that, most of that stuff is from the love chapter. Yeah, this is the love chapter at the end. Yep. And so there's a couple places at the end. Most of the book, I, I felt reading it like I was, a, I was a spectator of him talking to the disinherited. Mm-hmm. having I wouldn't consider myself ever having deeply experienced what it meant to be disinherited. Okay. But there's a couple places where he actually talks about both groups. So mm-hmm. on six, page 96, he says, At the center of the attitude is a core and painstaking disciple discipline made possible only by personal triumph the ethical demand upon the more i'm sorry the ethical demand upon the more privileged and the underprivileged is the same mm-hmm. right yeah that's right and then the, the very last quote of the book is yeah, um, for the privileged and the underprivileged alike, mm-hmm. if the individual puts at the disposal of the spirit spirit capital s holy spirit the mm-hmm. needful dedication and discipline we can live effectively in the chaos of the present, the high destiny of a son of God. Mm-hmm. And one of the things he gets at a couple of these chapters is, I think it was in the hate chapter the most, mm-hmm. where he really emphasizes that the idea of being a child of God yes. is incredibly fundamental. And I think that's part of that surgery he's talking about. The surgery of the encouragement necessary, the rootedness in something immense is yeah. you are a child of God. Absolutely. Right. He says that there's two important mental questions. What am I? No, who am I? You know, a child of God. Mm-hmm. And what am I? And this speaks to um, self-realization, my, my capabilities as a human being. He says if you don't get the first question right, then it's hard to get the second, especially if you're in the disenfranchised group. Mm-hmm. You know, if, there, if, if society isn't telling you who you are and what, and what you should do in a positive light, then you've, you're left to yourselves, right? Yeah. And Sir Thurman says that um, identity in Christ has the power to answer both of those questions. You are a child of, of God, and, and you, can, you have power and ability through what, how God has made you in his image to do all kinds of, of good in his kingdom. Um, mm-hmm. And so, so I... Um, um, I, I find his his chapter on love to be uh, really 
compelling and it 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 stirs you up no matter where where you fall in the human mm-hmm. uh, spectrum. I totally agree yeah. with that. Yeah. Because I read it like I was spectating, but then I felt like it was about me as a human too. Yeah. You know, I felt like I'm watching a conversation. He's not actually talking directly to me, mm-hmm. but I, I'm like, man, this all applies to me. Yes. All this applies to me. Maybe it applies to that guy more, but that this applies to me so much. So, okay, so the book is under 100 pages. Mm-hmm. Um, would you say that if, so, if somebody has not read Black Authors mm-hmm. on civil rights, oh, disinherited, yeah. that like this is not a bad book? This this would should read. be a, one of the books on the top of your list. Because super short, really direct, mm-hmm. theologically robust, mm-hmm. really gets at the heart of the gospel. It also mm-hmm. crosses lines of like conservative liberal theologians because Thurman would be considered a liberal theologian. Yeah. But there's nothing in this book that's actually a heterodox. In fact, there's stuff in this book that a tr- like a modern liberal theologian would be very uncomfortable with. I think so. Because he, he straight up talks about us being children of God in a metaphysical sense, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And he never denies anything. When he talks about the religion of Jesus, he never denies anything more about Jesus. Right. Right? So I, I think he's really interesting because it, it allows us to talk with liberal Christians be, without giving anything up to them, but mm-hmm. seeing certain things from how mm-hmm. they would talk about stuff. Mm-hmm. So I found this book great on like five levels. Great, great African-American author, mm-hmm. situated in a period we don't read a lot of authors from, mm-hmm. pre-1940, right? Yep. World traveler. Yes. Um, experience in multiple places in the United States. Grew up in Florida, pastor in San Francisco, um, was a professor in Boston. Yep. Um, splits space between liberal, conservative, Christian, he is somebody who later, his, his effect on King, who is like a founding father of the American nation in terms mm-hmm. of our identity mm-hmm. now, mm-hmm. is profound. So mm-hmm. it leads you to read King better. Mm-hmm. And it's super short. I cannot think of any author that's as learned as this guy who writes with the economy of words he does. And though he uses some decently difficult um, yes. vocabulary, it's not hard. Right. Like if you hang in there, you'll have to read us some sentences a couple of times. You use your dictionary a little bit, but not, not but too not often. not much. And you don't have to slog through a lot. And the, no. he reuses words. So you get the word one time, you'll get it the next time. So I would say uh, African-American reading, if you're getting your feet wet, this would be a good start, mm-hmm. you would say? I would say so. Yeah, I, I'd, I'd recommend it. From my experience, I would say that too. Yeah. So great. Well, uh, if you have any questions, you'll see Lloyd and I in the hallway or send us emails or whatever. And um, I hope that this was helpful for you. And it was good to have you on the podcast. Like we don't get you on here very much, but no, this was my first podcast. It was it, a lot of fun. Oh, yeah, we haven't done your testimony yet. Not yet. Oh, we gotta do that soon. Okay, okay. we'll do that real soon. Well, thanks for taking the time. Mm-hmm. All right. We'll see you guys. Yeah.